Hello, and welcome to For Your Listening Pleasure, a podcast focused on talking with interesting and diverse individuals and discussing how their backgrounds shape them into the people they are today. I am your host, Mallory Waxman. Today on the podcast, I'm excited to be welcoming the beautiful Chloe Flower. Chloe is an accomplished pianist, composer, and producer. Her self-created sound, known as Popsicle, embodies sweet melodies, epic strings, and hip-hop beats all blended together. This multidimensional star has become music and fashion's go-to creator. She intertwines her personal couture style and unique sound into something the industry has never seen or heard. As an official Steinway artist, Chloe has grown into a musical powerhouse over the years. From her show-stopping 2019 Grammy Awards performance with Cardi B, to co-producing and composing for artists such as Celine Dion, Johnny Mathis, 2 Chains, Nas, and Meek Mill. Chloe is also dedicated to humanitarian efforts through her work as an advocate of anti-human trafficking and a champion of music education and therapy. It's truly such an honor to be welcoming Chloe to the For Your Listening Pleasure podcast. Listeners, before we dive into today's episode, I want to let you know about For Your Listening Pleasure's first collaboration. One of the podcast goals is to raise awareness about various nonprofits and organizations doing good in the world. I always ask each podcast guest if they are part of a particular nonprofit or if there's a specific organization that they support. I have a running list and I hope that one day I will be able to raise awareness and give to each of them. I am excited to announce my first collaboration with The Street artist wordsmith together we designed a sweatshirt that you're now able to purchase and all proceeds will be going to pause chicago and pets for vets make sure to listen to each of their mini episodes to learn more about what each organization does and where the funds will go I'm also happy to inform listeners that under the podcast umbrella, I have started my own charitable organization called For Your Charitable Pleasure to ensure that all funds now and in the future go towards organizations making a difference in the world. I'm so excited about this collaboration that I personally will be donating $2 for every Instagram repost with the hope of raising awareness around these two outstanding organizations. All you need to do is follow the podcast on Instagram, tag For Your Listening Pleasure, and and include the link to purchase in the repost. Additional information, including social media, usernames, and purchase links can be found in this episode's show notes. One last thing, Wordsmith, also known as Brody, I thank you for your partnership on this. You were gracious enough to respond to my email and agree to come on the podcast. Thank you for dedicating your time and talent to this collaboration, and thank you for helping support two incredibly impactful organizations. And to my loyal listeners, thank you for listening to the podcast week after week, and I hope you enjoy this episode. So Chloe, thank you so much for joining me. I've been looking forward to this conversation all month. Why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself to listeners? Sure. Hi, I'm so excited to be here with you. I am Chloe Flower and I'm a pianist, composer, producer, activist. I think that's what it says on my Instagram. For those who might not know you or your music, you actually created your own genre because what you wanted to play wasn't out there. Can you describe what Popsicle is? I didn't mean to start the genre. In fact, I never even told anyone that I called it Popsicle except 
when I was in meetings because I didn't know how else to describe it, like classical, but pop. Classical kind of sometimes in pop song format, classical with more pop beats rather than traditional classical crossover beats, which were typically house, techno, um, and then like usually the whole song through. So structurally, aesthetically, and musically, I felt like it was just more pop, more cinematic. And so I felt like if it, 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 I can't be the only person <laughs> that does music that feels this way. So I just started calling it Popsicle by accident when actually someone at Lake Nona, a performance I did um, with Renee Fleming, she's an amazing classical artist. When they in introduced me, they were like, she started a genre called Popsicle. And I was so embarrassed because I was like, oh my God, I don't tell anybody that. And so that's kind of how it started. And it just, you know, I just went with it. <laughs> So you started performing at the age of two, I believe, but your first um, performance was at a nursing home, which I think is so adorable. But what I found really interesting about your story is that you and your mom were out shopping. There was some competition going on. You went, you listened, you talked to the winner who said that they had this piano teacher and you're like, done. I want in. I want to go. But this piano teacher told you at the age of 12, like you weren't where you needed to be. And I think that at 12 years old, if your dream kind of in that moment, you were told no, that would, most people would maybe be like, oh, okay, let me reconsider. Or I don't know, like that negative kind of experience might've shifted. You were like, no, I'm actually going to work between 12 to 18 hours a day. I am going to practice. Can you talk about what that conversation looked like? And if you remember how you felt hearing that you weren't good enough or where you needed to be within the classical category? Absolutely. You know, that um, was a very vivid memory for me. I remember it very well. I remember everything about it. I remember the bar, it was, a, it was an international Bartok Kabalevsky competition in Radford, Virginia. I ended up entering that competition a couple years later, um, just for fun, because I was being competitive. Um, <laughs> but I was like, I'm going to go back and win that one. Um, but yeah, so I went backstage, you know, classical concerts are much easier to get into backstage than like a pop concert. So it wasn't hard to get backstage and, and talk with the winner. And when I met her, she was actually 11. She was like a year younger than me. And I just couldn't believe how amazing she was. I hadn't seen that level of musicianship from my hometown. And I thought, I know for sure I'm missing out in terms of just lessons and, and in terms of study, if this is where 11 year olds are um, right now. And so she was so sweet. I think that was my very first encounter with somebody in my industry who was also an Asian young musician. And she was so supportive. Like she was like, I am going to introduce you to my piano teacher. I am his favorite student. He will listen to me. Her mother was so sweet, barely spoke English, befriended my mother. In fact, when we went to go study um, with my first lesson, they came and met us for lunch to like wish us luck and everything. It was really, really sweet. So that kind of supportiveness, I think, was definitely something I remember very early on, like such a good example for me to learn as a as a young kid, like, oh, this, like, imagine if she had been rude to me or or not sharing, you know, I could have had like a different reaction in, in myself and the way that I react to things too. So I think I've always been like a giving person. Part of that, I think, comes from my early childhood experiences. And that was one of them. And I remember when I went to the lesson, I played this Bach prelude. And it was like so basic, 
for, it's like something that we study on. It's not something that you perform an audition with. And he was like, is this all you can play? And I'm like, but it's Bach, it's so classical, you know? And he was like, you're definitely way too old to be starting at conservatory level. You are old. He told me I was old, period. Um, and that Wait, I wasn't- at, at like 14, at 14. He at 12. Or at 12. 12, I was old. That's even, wow. Yes, I am very old. I'm very behind um, and just repertoire wise. And I think, you know, what he saw in me was musicality because I think that's that was always my differentiating factor, right? I, I had um, musicality that can't be taught, they say, you know? So it's something that was innate in me. He saw that in me. So he kind of was like on the fence and I got that vibe. Like I was like, he is on the fence. Like he's not saying flat out, no, get out of my studio. He's like, you're really behind, but you're very musical. I just don't know if you can pull it together in two months and do this audition. I had two months. I think two months or one month, one and a half months to do this, um, to, to prepare for this audition. And I was like, I will practice 14, eight, I was 12 to 14 hours a day. I will practice until this audition. I will, I will at least be good enough to try. And so he was like, okay, we'll see if you get in, I'll continue studying with you. And so I practiced 14 hours a day It was summer. So I didn't have school. And, um, yeah. And so that was my, my lesson was July 5th or 6th, July 6th. The audition was in September, early September, maybe end of August. Um, and so I did the audition and everybody was like, it says here on your on your, uh, on your your resume, because back then it was like a piece of paper. <laughs> and he was like, I remember one of the judges was like, it says here you've only been studying conservatory level training for, you know, two months. He's like, "What? It, this is a mistake. And my piano teacher was so proud. He like stood up and he was like, no, she, it's correct. She has been studying with me for two months and that is it. And so it was like a really great moment. So um, yeah, I got accepted and I studied with him and, and you know, had to work my ass off ever since. <laughs> so obviously when people, when kids have dreams like that, you need your parents' support because financially, driving to auditions or lessons how and obviously it sounds like your parents were very supportive but how was their support like helpful because I feel like I've always been at like competitions when I was in a sport and you would see those parents who would like put their kids down or not be so supportive and then I would just look at my parents and say oh I'm so thankful I have you guys like regardless of how crazy the dream is you've always been in my corner um Talk about what that meant for you to have your parents support. I am so lucky. You know, I think part of the reason I care so much about music education, I care so much about um, access is because I had so much access and exact, exactly what that means, access to instruments, access to lessons, access to the best schools, but also access to, to support. And which I think, especially at a, at a high level classical um genre it the the stereotype is not is a stereotype for a reason right like parents can be stage parents and they can be extremely um competitive as competitive as other students and i was so lucky because my mother was and my father were very much like almost like not competitive enough in a way like i wish they pushed me more because i pushed myself so much and um they would push me to study well and practice, but it was like, they were like, no matter what happens, you're doing what you love and that's okay. And so it doesn't matter if you make money. It doesn't matter if you tour, as long as you continue doing this thing that you are good at and you love, that is the reward in itself. Now, 
you know, like I always thought that like until I was like, you know, I, I started thinking about wanting to do records and sign with a label and I was like, oh, but I'm just going to continue to work hard and continue to do my best and it will all come to me. So that was my mentality until like 25, <laughs> you know, like literally until my 20s. And I was like, wait, I think I have to go out there and like start hustling a little bit more and be more aggressive. And so um uh, that support was amazing, but sometimes, you know, it was like too supportive in a way, um, but definitely shaped me, shaped my confidence. And I think the fact that I was able to go ask people for help so easily and, and take so much risk, not just in my sound, but in my aesthetic, like those are all things I think if a, psych a psychologist analyzed me would say, you know, I felt comfortable enough to step outside of my comfort zone because my parents were so supportive. And speaking of stepping out of your comfort zone, you ended up going to London to a conservatory. And that's kind of where you got your first taste of hip hop and pop music. And it was kind of a reawakening where, yes, you would study classical music during the day, but then you would be out on the town and scene experiencing all this, this different kind of music. How did that start to shape your outlook on where you wanted to take your career? I think uh, it definitely was something I was used to. Again, that duality of being too pop for classical and too classical for pop. Also, I grew up in an all white town. So it was too Asian for the Asians. You know, a lot of Asian, um, tri uh, Asian people were like, you're too Americanized. And then obviously my hometown, the Americans in my hometown were like, you're so Asian. And so I never really fit any fit in anywhere. And, and so, in music, it was the same. And I think I was just so used to that, that it wasn't that big of a deal. But definitely, I separated the two. I was like, in my practice room, practicing Bach, and then, you know, out on the town, listening to hip hop. And it never occurred me occurred to me to mix them until I was really bored in the studio and in the conservatory one day in my room, I was just playing Bach. And then I was like, let me just listen to like Fat Joe lean back. And then like, I started playing the Bach to it. And I was like, wait, this kind of sounds sick. Like, if I could do this better, could I do this better? And then this, I, it wasn't my first time hearing crossover music. So I thought maybe I can do this with hip hop or maybe I can do this in a more pop way. Even the structure, the way that the pop structure flowed kind of matched the box partita I was working on. And so I thought that was very interesting that like the, 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 the um, flow of the songs went with each other so then i was like oh this is like a math thing this is like a oh, this is like a structure thing that works universally that i can kind of harness and switch around and play with and so that's kind of where the idea happened there in london but so you're in london you came back but your first album took what 20 years 10 years um it took, yeah, I, even long, it, even, Longer? yeah, it feels like it, well, yeah, 20 years. I mean, like I wasn't working, working on my album. I was working on it, but I wasn't working on it in a real way because I didn't know how to produce. So I didn't actually start working on my album as you hear it now until I would say like 2010. And that's when I signed with Babyface. And I brought him these very rough ideas that I had done in garage bands. I mean, with like, the garage band beats that come with garage band. So um, I was like, obviously you're a producer, so you know beats better, but just try to ignore how bad they sound, but listen to the music, listen to the structure and the idea. Um, so that started in like 2010. So ultimately it was, my album was supposed to come out a little sooner, but then COVID happened. But um, 
So it would have taken 11 years. It took basically 11, 12 years for it to come out. So I recorded like 200, 300 songs. <laughs> so where does it all come from? Like inspirational. I listened to her album the other day when I was on a walk and I was just thinking when you hear lyrics, it's, it's kind of like it's a breakup or a love song or they're trying to get a message across. But with your music, there's no words, obviously, but you feel something. But how do you go into the studio? Is it that you're feeling something and that the sound evokes the emotion? Or do you have an idea of like sounds you hear that you enjoy that you want to incorporate? How does that process work for you? You know, it's funny, like whenever I do interviews and they ask me, like, where did the the inspiration come from? Um, as the song develops more, the inspiration, uh, the, I start to build a story in my mind and I start to think about a story. But from the beginning, in the very beginning of the project, I I just write and I don't have a story. I don't have like, I don't know. It just I, I just play chords. I play melodies. I and I play with ideas and they either sound wrong or right to me. And I don't know how to explain it. Like it just sounds wrong or it just sounds right. And then as I build, so I always build the structure of the song first with the chords. And then as I build the melody and start to really add the arpeggios and add the, 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 the more content, more harmonies, that's when I start to build a story. It really comes halfway through. It doesn't come at the beginning. It's so weird. I know, like, and I always feel like I have to make something up when they ask me that question. I'm just like, uh. <laughs> You're being honest about your process because I think no artist's process is the same. What I also really respect about you is when you were talking about the drums and the 808s, you talked about trying to figure it out on GarageBand, but you took a long time to actually master it so you can now create your own drum beats. Um, why? did you feel the need to master that? Was it to kind of prove to other producers that you were at the same level? Was it as a female, maybe other female um, artists don't know that aspect of the music? What, what do you think? You know, initially it was very, uh, for a very simple reason. I had worked with so many producers and they just didn't get what I was doing. The patterns were always wrong. I didn't know how to explain verbally why I didn't like what it sounded like or how to say, I still don't know. Like even when I was working on Get What You Get, I was trying to explain to Tommy and Tone. I was like, wait, the, 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 the hat is like too sharp. I need it crispier, but not so crispy. Like this is, these are words that I use. And so I'm, I was really bad at articulating how I wanted something to sound and it was never right. And like, the, the drums, the 808s, the hi-hats, the kicks, they are, I treat them because there's no lyrics. I treat them like the violin, the flute, the, the, everyone is equal. And the drum pattern is never copied and pasted. It always has to be, you know, it has to be played differently. It has to flow with the music. It can't just be the same. And I think with lots of producers who do vocals, every drum is the same. You copy and paste, copy and paste, except for little areas throughout the songs, like transitionals and the bridge. Um, so I was like, yo, it's been like five years and I still don't have a beat that I like. And so I was like, let me just see if I can figure this out and see if I can explain it through through sound. And so that's what I ended up doing. I watched a bunch of YouTube tutorials. I started sitting in on producer sessions. I taught myself how to use Logic. Um, Babyface's engineer helped me with any questions I had, but you know, YouTube was a great resource for me. I learned a lot and, and it was really just to, to get the sound I wanted, to get the patterns. And then that way I would, all of the songs on my album, I did the temp beat. 
And then I would send it to a producer and be like, pick better sounds because I don't have the same sound library as you, except for some of the, like Rise Up was a uh, sound library was from myself, but you know, get what you get, no limit. Like I really did 10 beats for both of those. So as a female producer, how has it been in the industry? Because I've talked to a lot of other female pioneers in their fields. And, you know, it's sad that the stories aren't better given where we are today, but it's, you're not getting paid the same amount if paid at all, or people will kind of take advantage of your niceness or kindness. I know I've always been so happy to help others, but at some point it's like, you're taking advantage, like pay me for my time or for my knowledge. How have you navigated the music industry? It's really difficult. You're absolutely right. And as I started to write my own beats and sit in on these producer sessions, I noticed that I was the only female in the room all the time. I would say like 99% of the time I was working with all men and um, it was very noticeable. And as a woman, as an Asian woman, um, Definitely. <laughs> it was, it was tricky. I think I, I joked that I worked, you know, I got paid like negative $2,000 an hour because of all the hours I worked for free and never got paid. And often, you know, producers would say, oh, well, you're rich. You don't need it. Or, oh, you're a classical pianist. So, you know, you're fine. Like you don't have, this isn't, uh, this isn't your lifeline. So you can do classical forever. So you don't need the credit. And it was always that. And I didn't know, I didn't have a manager. I didn't have an assistant. I didn't have anybody there to really, um, protect me in that way. And so that was a difficult thing that I had to definitely learn on my own. And I, you know, I produced a lot of songs that um, I contributed to a lot of songs that uh, I never got credit for, but, you know, I had Mike Will, I had Baby Babe, both of them, Nas, um, they all gave me credit and, and that was really important to them. And so I continue to work with them, you know, even still, because I was like, oh, I remember you, you offered credit to me when nobody else did, you know, publishing, that's real points. Oh, yeah. What would you tell younger musicians who are coming up who, you know, they get this opportunity and they go, oh, it's okay. You don't have to pay me. You know, I just want to be part of it. It's a learning experience. But then at some point you have to have that uncomfortable conversation. Uh, What pieces of advice would you have? I would tell them to be really vocal about it. What I learned is that everybody understands when you're doing the work and you're putting in the work, no one's ever mad at you. I was always scared to stick up for myself and ask for credit because I was afraid that they would never invite me back because they would be like, oh, she's going to ask for credit. We don't want to share with her. And I was just really trying to learn. It was like learning was more important to me than getting the credit at the time. And I felt like, oh, I'm not even doing anything. I'm not as good as them. I'm not as experienced. So maybe I don't deserve the credit. But you do. I would tell them anytime you say something like, I want a credit for this, typically they're not going to fight back. They're not going to fight back. I think especially nowadays with everything going on in the climate that we live in, people are you know, becoming more scared to take advantage and fuck people over. Oh God, am I allowed to swear? On this oh yeah, you're allowed to swear. Don't oh worry. my God. Yeah, I, they're, they're, afraid. All time. they're afraid to screw people over now. And I think that that is, that's one thing that I think people being held accountable uh, is, is great in that way. So I would say, don't be scared because you know what? There's so much music out there. There's so many opportunities and there's so many producers um, ask for the credit because all they can do is say no, you know? I, I am a big believer in just asking. And if you, if it, the answer is no, then it's like, okay, I can understand, you know, can I ask why, or 
what do I need to do in the future to get credit or what advice I try to spin it into more of a learning opportunity. But I also will say as a female, sometimes it's really uncomfortable to ask or to raise your hand and in a, especially a room full of men, because you kind of get one shot to come across a certain way. And if you don't, you're not going to get that shot that easily, which is sad, but it's also the reality. So it's, you have to navigate it in the right way. But one person who really made sure that you got your shot was Cardi B. And let's talk about that 2019 Grammy performance. Um, How did you and Cardi get um, together? Who made the ask or how do you know her? So my really good friend, and she was my publicist too, Lauren Cherodini, she invited me to a dinner and I was on the way to a session with Meek Mill. And I couldn't drink because I I can't drink and play piano. I need hand-eye coordination. So I was very sober at the dinner and um, I didn't stay long. And one of the people that she invited to the dinner was Cardi's marketing manager, Marsha St. Hubert. She works at Atlantic Records. And we were talking about, um, you know, music. And I said, I'm going to a session. And so she knew I was a pianist from that night. And then I never really saw her again. Um, And then I went to the Philippines. And while I was there, uh, Lauren called me. She's like, did you get a call from Marsha? And I said, no, but I'm on my way back from the Philippines. I may have missed it. And when I got home, uh, she had called me again. Uh, Someone from the production team had called me on behalf of Marsha and asked me, uh, said that Cardi B had seen one of my Instagram covers. I feel like it was like the Kendrick Lamar one. I don't remember. Um, But she had seen one of my covers and wanted me to perform with her at the Grammys, possibly. I think I was second choice. And um, I I was like, I don't know. I was like, you know, I heard money and there's only two notes, E flat and E. Like there's nothing going on in that song other than that. I don't really, I was like, you could actually hire a dancer. I can teach them. There's just two notes. Um, The only way it's really going to work is if I can add more stuff to it. And so they were like, yeah, go ahead, add whatever you want. And so I wrote that. And by the way, they were like, and you have to leave in like the day after tomorrow for LA for rehearsals. So the good Grammys are in a week. And so I was like, oh my God. So I wrote this thing real quick. I flew to LA. We changed it during rehearsal, mid rehearsals, making all these changes. Um, but that was my first time meeting her was in that rehearsal. And she was so shy. <laughs> That's amazing. And for listeners who have not seen the performance, we'll link to it. But you give a performance, like you start off, you're giving attitude, which is amazing. And who were you wearing? Because that outfit was stunning. And we're definitely on- talk about your fashion because even right now I'm dying over this lime green shirt you're wearing, but okay. just in general, um, your fashion, but that it was gorgeous. Thank you. I actually cannot pronounce the name of the designer. It's, um, I have to text it to you. It's really long. It starts with a Z and it's very long. It's a, it's a designer I had never heard of. And Cardi actually um, helped, helped my stylist Brooklyn pick it because I was wearing something completely different and then had a wardrobe malfunction on Friday night. So Saturday, they put me in a completely different outfit that was all silver. And Cardi was like, uh, stopped to the rehearsal, mid-rehearsal and was like, I don't like your outfit. I was like, oh my God, me either. I hate it. And she's like, she has to wear something big 
and it has to stand out because she needs to have her moment in music and fashion. If she wears a silver piece, she's going to blend in with the piano and no one's going to see her. And I was so shocked because I think initially, like everyone in the room was like, we can't let her be too, because I was already in the middle on a crystal piano. Yeah, you don't want to be the focus. Cardi needs to be the focus. But to be honest, Cardi like twerking on the piano in the center, it's hard to kind of take it away. I feel like Cardi's probably so sure of herself and what she brings to a performance that it's nice that she wants other people to shine instead of it just focused on her. Totally. And she was like, you know, even when they, you know, took out the middle solo of mine, she had them put it back in. She goes, where's the piano, more piano. And I think she ultimately, you know, what she had said many times was ultimately I need the best possible performance. This is my first Grammy performance and whatever it needs to be, it needs to be great. And so all of our egos were to the side hers as more than anyone, but also mine, you know, I was like, I'm here as like a I've worked for hire. Right. And so, um, whatever the client wants, you know, I'm just here to play. I'm not here to like take away. It was my, not my intention to like steal the show. You know, I was there to just do my best. And, uh, and so she was like, no, Chloe needs to stand out and she needs to have a moment. And I was like, oh, that's pretty remarkable that she's such a girl's girl like that. And she's letting me have this moment. And so that was uh, another, again, like 12 years old, you know, another moment where you're just seeing this female empowerment. I've just been so blessed with so much female empowerment that was like, I have to I have to empower other females, right? I have to empower other musicians because otherwise, what's the point of life? Is Oh, absolutely. Is performing like that with an attitude and something that you're comfortable with? Because when you think of classic piano, you think they're head down. You're not even looking at the audience, but you really have started to kind of come into your own with bringing a more of a performance aspect to what, when you're playing live. Um, was that something that came easy to you? Girl, no. I was crying. I was like, first of all, I've always been a pianist. I don't have a microphone. I always look down. I'm not even facing the audience, just like you said. I have never performed on live TV. And I asked them on Saturday, I said, hey, uh, after sound check, I was like, yo, the um, camera was like in my face. For, and by the way, they weren't supposed to be there the whole time. They were supposed to leave after the intro. But I was like, they were, they were in my face during the intro part, like not the part where they hit the notes, but before that, um, is it okay if I look at the camera? What am I supposed to do? I don't know live television. They're like, just do what you feel. I, I mean, like it was like, I was like, uh, so stressed. They were like, just do what you feel. I'm like, my, my, what I feel is to fucking go like this and like in my fucking, like my little bubble and not look at the, the audience, but this is the Grammys. I'm, I'm on stage with the biggest artist in the world right now. I cannot look like, um, I cannot ruin her performance by being like a classical pianist. Right. Um, and I always like to, you know, play with my little like movements. That's natural. Looking at the audience, looking at the camera girl, that was my first time. I had no idea what I was doing. I did not practice looking at the camera. He was, he was supposed to go wide. He stayed there. And I was like, I saw him in my peripheral. I was like, I guess, should I just look at him? I don't know what to do. It's on me. What do I do? That was like so impromptu. You would (laughs) never have known that that was your first performance. Like it was spot on flawless, honestly. And I've, when I've had like friends come over, um, they'll see like who I'm interviewing. I'm like, wait, guys, you have to watch this performance. And I've literally put it on, I think for five or six different people over the last few weeks being like, do you remember this? This is who I'm going to talk to. And I'm just like, look at, she's killing it. And it just, 
you know, I had done some research to prepare for this and learned about, you know, Cardi and how she was like, yes, like, you know, we want her to shine. And it was just a flawless performance from you and her and together. It was just so strong and gave off that really strong female energy. So good That's job. exactly what it was. <laughs> it yes. was really strong, all female energy. It was like female choreographer for female producers. Every, everyone was a chick and it was amazing. That's amazing. Um, who you've worked with amazing list of people, Celine Dion, Deepak Chopra, you said Nas, Meek Mill, like Cardi, Babyface. Who is on that bucket list still that you would love to work with or have a song that you love that you want to rework? I'm such a cornball, so I really want to do a sick ballad, and I would love to do a song with Ariana, because Ariana Grande, because she is one of those artists like me who goes into the studio and does everything, right? Like, she will add her own harmonies. She's, like, in the vocal booth producing, and I have so much respect for her as a musician, not just because of her voice, but her ability to hear things and make changes and speak up for herself and, you know, uh, have creative input. I just feel like uh, doing, like, a Christmas song with her or something would be, like, my ultimate dream <laughs> Tommy Brown do you hear that <laughs> and we gotta make it happen I know we have to <laughs> Let's get on the phone um exactly so for most musicians they really can't listen to music because you start to hear everything do you enjoy listening to music or is it something that you shy away from a little bit I only listen to music when I'm working so if I have music on in the background um I can't, I can't listen passively. Like I'm always like, hmm, what sound is that? Oh, what, what harmony is that? Oh, what instrument is that? What drum is that? Oh, who produced this? And I'm like, I cannot, I, I become like fight or flight instantly. So my poor boyfriend um, isn't allowed to listen to music when we drive in the car and when he cooks, because I just can't, I can't handle it. So I, I don't go to live concerts enough. I don't, I'm no. so horrible like that. I, I think, I think Questlove is the same I heard. <laughs> yeah, no, I've heard it from a bunch of, like artists um, and producers, because they can hear everything and making notes, being like, I would have done it more like this than that. And then you're working when you're supposed to kind of be enjoying yourself. Totally. It's like not relaxing for me usually. Like even classical, I'm like, oh my God, oh my God, what piece is that? Oh my God, what movement is that? Oh my God, I love this horns. Which orchestra? No, I can't. <laughs> so just off curiosity, because Bridgington's coming out again and they did so many um, cover songs classically and people loved all of these like pop songs that were done in a classic way the show Bridgington on Netflix like you know how they did all the songs last season um what did you think of that because I felt like there was a big push with people starting to listen to classical music in a but with songs they kind of knew yeah, you know, that was so interesting. I remember uh, seeing Bridgerton, I think their album was like on number, it went to number one on the charts as well. And it was, um, it was interesting because it was like a classical instrumental cover that uh, I think a lot of people do. They're not the first um, piano, piano guys who are also signed to my label. That's all they do. They do nothing but covers. Um, and and that's true. That's another traditional classical crossover thing to do covers. And, um, you know, I did a cover of Billie Eilish, Bad Guy. I wasn't going to put it on the album, but it was so inspired by, you know, Danny Elfman, this composer I love. And he- Oh, was, I love I, him. I, he said yeah, Wonka, I love him, right? Willy Wonka. He's done like a ton of the Tim Burton. Tim Burton. Yeah. 
amazing. Exactly. So he's very quirky. He has that Tim Burton vibe, right? So um, I heard when I heard do 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 when I heard all those sounds, I was like, ooh, the sounds of Danny Elfman. Let me do and it's so funny that they collaborated the Hollywood Bowl for Halloween after that because I was like see I told you I hear her I hear him in her music and um and uh yeah I I would say you know it's like I've, I've heard so many of them they're all great they're all really well done I think anything we can do to get people more interested in listening to classical music is amazing and I support it I think I think part of the thing that I'm trying to do with my album and why I chose not to have as many covers was because I also want people to not have to only listen to instrumental music when it's like a cover. Like I want them to be able to come to a song, even if it's a classical cover, you know, like Liberace, for instance, only did covers. He never wrote a song for. And I thought, you know, we're, we're creating these covers, but I also want to inspire people to compose and to write and do something new or even play classical and, and listen to a classical song that's not Claire de Lune and Moonlight Sonata, you know, something else other than yes. for a leave. Yes. Um, I feel bad because I don't know it, but there was a show when I was younger growing up called Everwood and it was a base around a young character who was classically trained, wanted to go to Juilliard. And so what I loved about that show besides the overall soundtrack was just like prime early 2000s like great random bands that they would pull that just speak to me but I remember and I'll have to text you this I'll have to find the name but there was this one piano song and it wasn't a like you know the candlelight or like a one you would always know but I have it on a playlist and I listen to it all the time and I pulled the music the classical music that he would play or that they would play on the show None of them are big pieces that you would know, but I just love them so much. And I just always remember listening to it when I was younger. And movies are such an important way to get those sounds across. And I think people can, you know, I went to Seth, um, Seth McFarland's Christmas party a couple of times. And every year he has, he hires um, a, a live orchestra, full orchestra with symphony. And um, he has like Frank Sinatra's old band people like coming in and performing and people are, I'm not even joking. They're like standing on the couches and the tables, rocking out to Indiana Jones theme song, rocking out to like Titanic. And it's, and I, it was like a real life ball moment for me. I was like, people, they just need to feel an association, right? So with the covers, they feel that association with the artist that they like or the song that they like with the cinema, they feel that association with the movie and the film. So they recognize it. They just have to hear it more. It's like an exposure thing. So they've heard Burleigh, they've heard Claire de Lune, they've heard Moonlight so many times in all these different films. And I think it's really important for film film musical directors to choose other music because there is, there is so much other music that will evoke that same feeling and, you know, and there's so much repertoire out there. And so uh, I would say, you know, I don't even know what the question was. I have to check out Evergreen, but. <laughs> no, like it's, you know, it's funny with the pandemic, I feel like we all kind of ran out of TV shows. And last fall, I saw that Amazon had Everwood all like four or five seasons for free. And I was like, game on. It was wintertime in Chicago. And I called up my parents. I'm like, I'm re-watching Everwood. And my mom's like, okay, I'll talk to you in a few weeks. Like, I know, I know where this is going. So, I'm so going to watch that next. Because oh I'm out of shows completely. Oh, yeah. It's like a so slow wrong. build, but like the character stories, it's like a small town, you know, it's all the good, solid CW. 
yeah old school kind of style Um, and I love early 2000s oh my god yes so outside of music you donate your time to raise awareness around human trafficking which is such an important topic and I think that people shy away from talking about it because it's uncomfortable um and you just don't really know how to break the ice when you're talking about it but can you tell us one, how did you get involved and why do you feel it is so important to keep having those uncomfortable conversations? Yeah, of course. It's it's really definitely um, a vibe kill when you're like, hey, let's talk about, you know, five-year-olds being raped. Uh, it's not the funnest conversation to have. Um, but again, I think that we're in a place now where we need to have these hard conversations and I don't shy away from having them because I would have loved for someone to share that with me earlier. I uh, learned about human trafficking in 2006 when I was touring classical music only and I had done an impromptu trip to Cambodia and I was supposed to be on this airplane. I was like all over the place. If you knew me better, you would know that I'm just like kind of fly by the seat of my pants. I don't need to follow a schedule. I'll like make changes and take a flight here for no reason. Um, So when I got to Cambodia and saw Angkor Wat, I was supposed to fly the next morning to a beach town. I think it's like Sukhutville. And I decided, um, God, I love Angkor Wat. I want to see it a second day. So I just didn't get on my flight. I didn't cancel the ticket. It was probably like $40. And the plane crashed and everyone died. And um, I saw that on the news the next day. They couldn't find the plane for three days. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm supposed to be on that flight. I still have my paper ticket. And so I rented a bike and decided to explore Cambodia and just, you know, be like, why am I here? You know, it's like a kind of like a life changing contemplation moment for me that I had never had. And when I was uh, exploring down the beaten path that was like very not touristy, um, I saw these little houses. And if you had ever been to Cambodia, it's still suffering from, you know, 1980, which was seems like long ago, but it wasn't that long ago when Pol Pot was removed. They are still suffering from from that um, from that regime. And so it's extremely poor. So when you see like a, an American looking style home architecturally, it just stands out. You're like, what is that? So I noticed it, looked at it. I saw little red lights outside everywhere. And I saw these little children. And I was like, this looks like a brothel in this precarious situation with like expats coming out, like men, older men, usually white coming out. I thought this is so weird. So I went back to my hotel room and I Googled like, um, brothel children Cambodia like I had no idea what to look for right and then I saw all this stuff and at the time it was called AFESIP A-F-E-S-I-P it's a French acronym um and they they I read all about this like like three-year-olds four-year-olds five-year-olds being raped you know um and dumped in dumpsters afterwards and uh I was like oh my god I've traveled the world I've been to six countries before getting here I can't believe I don't know about this how have I never heard about this before so it became you know an immediate uh, awareness campaign when I flew back to New York I did all these $20 awareness events and donated them back to APHASIP um, and that's how I got involved that was my first time well one I hope that listeners and myself need to get way more educated and figure out ways to help two I'm about to launch my first merch collaboration with a guest around animal non-for-profit so we're going to do a sweatshirt and all proceeds are going to go to two different animal non-for-profits. What I would love to ask and see if you want to is let's have yes. something <laughs> to partner on and our next 
thing will launch will be around this. And we'll, I believe you sit on a board or you're a part yeah. of the organization and all proceeds from whatever we design together will go towards that. So we'll keep in touch and we'll work through that. But the goal of this show is to raise awareness and all proceeds from everything go to different non-for-profits. And you just even talking about that, like three, four, five-year-olds, it just, it breaks my heart because that's not, children should be protected and supported. I know that that's detrimental to them moving forward to be productive members of society and the trauma that comes with that. And no one should deal with that. So we will work together and come up with something and raise awareness. Absolutely. I love you. I'm going to cry. That's amazing. First of all, I was like, anything you do with animals. Yes. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. You know, I think, I think um, one of the most important things, you know, now the awareness campaign, people are pretty aware of it, but is prevention and, and, and eliminating the demand. And so organizations like yours that, that um, give to, to communities, give to communities, like, like music education is a tool of prevention. Right. And, and I think that's the best thing we can do is try to prevent it from happening, prevent anyone from uh, entering the demand side. So let's go. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So good. I'm excited. We'll keep this going. So I know you're very busy. We end every episode with the final three questions. Oh my God. Okay. So the first question is, if you had a quote or a mantra that you live by, what would it be? I think I was going to say like, okay, I was going to say a quote that I love that I always say um, in every interview, but what I think based on our conversation, I feel like my mantra is don't be afraid of the word no, because it goes back to so much about what we talked about, you know, asking for help from different producers, asking for credit, asking, you know, if I can study with your piano teacher, asking if I can create more music at the Grammys. All I could have heard was no, right? I got yeses luckily, but don't be afraid of no, because it can stop you from moving forward. And no is not the end of the world. Just ask someone else. You know, <laughs> I, you know, there's a quote that says, like, if you're asking someone, they say, no, you're asking the wrong person. Totally. That's how I feel. Yeah. Yeah. The second question is if you could relive any one day, which day would you pick? Oh my God. Um, if I could relive any day, I think I honestly would relive the Grammys. I know that sounds so cheesy. I don't want to say that, but it was such an amazing experience. I had so much fun and it went so fast. And, you know, it's one of those kind of moments where I don't want to change anything. And I'm such a perfectionist. And I always, you know, even every time I see a performance, I'm like, oh, I could have done this better. I could have done this better. And the Grammys was one of those rare performances where everything just went well and perfectly. And I would love to have like 10 more of those, you know? No, I mean, I would want to relive that day too. <laughs> I mean, it looked amazing, but more so to live in the moment more, to appreciate it, to know it's going to go well so you could enjoy it. Exactly. I, I feel like I didn't, I was so terrified and so nervous. I was like, why am I here? Um, and uh, yeah, if I could relive that and just, you know, have fun, even though, you know, I, I did have fun, but have more fun, that'd be great. <laughs> so the last question is um, if you had a theme song that played every time you walked into a room, which song would you choose? And for you, I want, you can have like one song that's yours that you've written, then do another song that you just really enjoy. You know, I think I would choose 
an instrumental. I, I, you know, Finesse by Bruno Mars is one of my favorite songs. And anytime I go to like a club or, you know, if I'm asking a DJ, I'm like, can you play this? Cause I can't ask them to play like Indiana Jones theme song, but I swear Indiana Jones theme song is honestly like my favorite song. And when I saw those people at Seth's house rocking out, I was like, no, this is like, this is touching people. It's so fun. I love instrumental music. And so if I had to pick one, I would pick that. Maybe if I had to pick something with lyrics, I would pick Finesse by Bruno because I freaking love that song. I'm going to go see him live next week, uh, the week after next in Vegas. Um, and then for me, for my theme song, I think I would pick, uh, if it was something I wrote, Popsicle, the last song on my track, because it's a medley of all the songs that I wrote uh, on my album. And it really tells that story. And it reminds me of, you know, I was inspired by that. That arrangement was inspired by Fantasia, the newer Fantasia. Um, and that last, the Rite of Spring uh, uh, animation. I, I think that that song tells a story and it kind of reminds me of like my life, like the ups and downs. And so I think in terms of a soundtrack, that's me. <laughs> no, great. You know what? I'll add all three of those songs to the- I'm sorry. <laughs> I think three songs are like one song. <laughs> no, no, no. I, there's been guests where I've done two, three. Really, it's just amazing because I think music's something that connects all of us. And what I love about this playlist is it's so um, vast and so all over the place that it's wonderful. So all three of those songs will be added to the For Your Listening Pleasure Spotify playlist. I love you. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Chloe, thank you so much. This has been so much fun. I um, have so enjoyed getting to know you and talk with you and we'll continue raising awareness and maybe we'll have you back on and maybe someone from the organization will come on too to really discuss where the money's going to go, how it helps and what people can do to kind of help with human trafficking. That would be so amazing. Thank you so much. You're as beautiful on the outside as you are on the inside. Congratulations to yourself. Thank you. (laughs)